Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 65. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Glenn Goodman. He's the author of The Crypto Trader, How Anyone Can Make Money Trading Bitcoin and Other Cryptocurrencies. Glenn was an ITV news reporter who traded the markets for extra cash until one day he realized he was actually a successful trader who did TV reporting for extra cash. He famously turned a £3,000 trade into £100,000 by betting there would be a financial crash in 2008. With his growing trading income, Glenn was able to leave his job in his 30s when he started trading cryptocurrencies. His Facebook page, The Shares Guy, became the biggest trading page in the world. I've received a review copy of his book and I have to say it's absolutely excellent. Just before we begin, I'd like to do a shout out to at James Woodhouse, a new subscriber, and for Twitter support from at KAG2020 Halley, Hamish Capital, and of course, Mark Tabor. Keep your eyes on the road. Glad you're enjoying the podcast. Fantastic stuff. So welcome to the show, Glenn. It's very good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on. Now, Glenn, um, we've got a copy of your fantastic book, The Crypto Trader, which we're obviously going to talk about today and your understanding of cryptocurrencies. Just tell us a bit about how you got into trading in the first place. Well, that would be a long time ago now, about 20 years ago. I got into trading like like many people did, like many kids did at the time. It was during the dot-com bubble when, you know, because I knew pretty much nothing about stocks and shares at the time. Um, but a lot of my friends were st suddenly starting things to me like, hey, you got to check out this cool dot-com. It's doubling. It's doubling again, which uh, may sound kind of familiar to any, any kids who are getting into cryptocurrency over the past couple of years, obviously. And my experiences at the time actually really helped me with the cryptocurrency boom in more recent times. What happened mainly to me back then was there was one share in particular called Gameplay. Uh, I don't know if either of you remember that company, Gameplay. Does it ring a bell? Vaguely. There were oh, so many dot-com boomy <laughs> companies out there, but uh, I, I, I vague memory of it. Yeah, it's one of those names, I suppose. They basically were trying to revolutionize online gaming. Online gaming was the big new thing at the time. And obviously, internet speeds weren't quite up to scratch yet. But we all knew, all of us gamers, and I was one at the time, uh, we knew that online gaming was going to be absolutely massive. Gameplay were at the forefront of this. My friend worked for the company. Uh, he was just sort of their lowest person in the company running around and he told me that they were going to be massive and I believed him and that we should buy lots of their shares. So I got my meager savings and poured them into gameplay shares and he showed me around their offices as well. He took me to their uh, their place in London where he worked. They had a five-story building in the center of London just for them, just for this startup company. No way. <laughs> <laughs> and they had like uh, it was it was kind of a forerunner of the Googles and Facebooks of today because it was really kind of it, it was full of Internet whiz kids, as mm. people used to call them. And yeah, there were there were old school arcade machines to play on and ping pong tables and literally people skateboarding and roller skating around their enormous offices. And, you know, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Yeah, and it was the cool. future. Now, here's the interesting thing is that, of 
course, it was the future. Mm. I mean, it literally was. We were right to think that they had got the right idea and they were heading in the right direction. But the mistake I made was, so we bought the shares, I bought lots of the shares, and uh, the shares doubled. And so obviously, I thought I was a genius, yeah, like well, like everybody does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every beginner thinks the same thing. You buy a share, it doubles. I'm a tr- I'm an investment genius. Amazing. And uh, what what happened next was uh, I watched it carry on going up, and then a few weeks later, my friend phoned me up, and uh, he said, oh, I don't know if you've seen, but the 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 shares have gone down. And I had a look, and they had halved in price from their peak. And he said. So this is a really great opportunity to buy even more of them. Ooh. And I said, yeah, that, you're absolutely right. I still had some savings left. I hadn't put the whole lot into gameplay just yet. And so uh, I poured more of them into gameplay. And then a couple of weeks later, I looked at the price and it had halved again. And I phoned him up. I said, what's going on? I thought gameplay were doing really well. And he said, it's just temporary. And this is an even better opportunity to buy even more of the shares. So I poured the last of my savings into the shares at a quarter of the the peak price. And I assumed that I would wait out this dot-com crash, as, as it was already being talked about as. And then, you know, they would go to the moon. And as, as cryptocurrency people, they'll, they'll say, go to the moon. And everything would be right. But that didn't happen. The shares continued going down and down and down and down. And once they got to kind of a rock bottom level, the company got bought out. And, you know, obviously when that happens, you've got no opportunity. Your hands are tied. You're never going to get your money back. Not going to happen. So my £5,000, which seemed like all the money in the world at the time, which was the total I'd poured in, where it was all my money in the world at the time, more or less. And uh they went to ten pounds. Oh wow! But that's that's quite a useful experience, isn't it? Because I've I've often felt that the if your first experience of trading or investing is effortless profits, then you get really, you know, you, it really goes to your head. Whereas if your first experience is a catastrophic disaster that that, that takes out all hands, then that's a salutary lesson you learn from that. So, for example, you learn about things like position sizing thereafter. Yeah, well, exactly. I, I I totally agree with you. And in fact, I've, I've I've attempted to calculate how much money I made from the lesson I learned uh, about not uh, not dollar cost averaging. In a sense, um, I mean, dollar cost averaging is is a bit of a more complicated concept, and and sometimes it gets a bit of a bad press. But I suppose what I'm really trying to say is, don't I learned not to add to my losers and add and add and add. Um, and I reckon that that has made me about a hundred times as much money, just that one lesson, as I lost. And so, yes, as you say, it was a very worthwhile lesson. It's it's made me, you know, a hundredfold as much money since. Just to explain to people who don't know about dollar cost averaging that that's basically averaging a position that's losing. So as the market's going against you, doing pretty much what Nick Leeson did uh, in the late 90s when he was buying the Nikkei as the market was falling. Eventually, uh, if the market keeps falling, you keep adding more to it, you know, you just run out of money. And that's, uh, it's the worst mistake you can make. It's it's generally regarded as the worst trading mistake, but it's also the most seductive mistake. You can see why people would do it because obviously they're trying to make their money back and trading is a game of psychology. Yeah, and it, well, and it makes you feel virtuous and, and you know, traders, most traders who lose money in, in the long run 
the ones who just never get the hang of it are the ones who kind of into their emotions really aren't they they're, they they're not their primary focus is not making money they think it is yeah. but their primary focus is not making money their primary focus is avoiding psychological pain and dollar cost averaging or, or adding to losers is a great way of avoiding psychological pain because it brings the average price of the shares that you bought down so it feels like you haven't lost as much money compared to the whatever price the the shares are at at that particular moment and and also it makes you feel like you're doing something virtuous by buying more at a cheap price which will reap dividends in the future and i think it's it's, it's worth also separating out the distinction between trading and investing because they're, they're clearly different animals but one thing that, that that's in the book and it sounds like a, a piece of glib advice but i think you you would testify to, to the value of it which is which is a, a, a definitely a trading uh, old saw, which is cut your losses and let your winners run. Mm. And, and and if I mean, I'm not a trader. I'm I'm a long term investor. But it, it, regardless, it, if there's one one takeaway from today's edition, it has to be there are certain things that are absolutely timeless and will save you a fortune, and that's one of them. I, I exactly, which is why it's kind of my number one rule in the book. I stick it front and center before you learn anything about cryptocurrency trading. Get cut your losses and let your winners run into your head, and you're already, you know, you're already shaping up to be a successful trader just with those, with those two simple rules kind of put together. And actually, I've had this discussion with uh, people about uh, Warren Buffett. And they say, well, you know, he's an investor, not a trader, so he doesn't abide by that maxim. Now, I would argue that Warren Buffett is, in a sense, just a very long-term trader. See, I wouldn't necessarily draw that clear distinction between an investor and a trader that you did just now, Tim, that he is like a very long-term trader in the sense that when he cuts his losses, what he's doing is uh, selling a company that has just lost its long-term direction and he believes in the very long term will just decline and not in, improve and and likewise he lets his winners run and run and run you know sometimes for decades so i think in a sense i'm just like warren buffett how did the book come about then the book came about because i'd done well trading cryptocurrency i was uh speaking at conferences and I had a big Facebook following on my page, Glenn Goodman, the shares guy, where initially I'd been talking mainly about shares. But uh, once I started talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, that's all anybody wanted to hear about. Um, so I just carried on talking about it. And that that became more and more popular. And then I think the crucial thing, the reason I got a publishing deal uh, was because at the end of 2017, you'll remember the, well, actually it was at the beginning of 2018, the, the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency markets started crashing quite dramatically, having risen by thousands and thousands of percentage points over the previous couple of years. And I identified near the top. I'm a kind of trend following trader, so I don't tend to identify tops before they happen or try and identify them before they happen. I wait until the trend is turning and I see clear signs that you know, some of which I talk about in the book and some of which are just through long experience. And uh, once I see things starting to go bad, I, I warned my followers on Facebook and I started selling my Bitcoin and cryptocurrency very shortly after, sort of end of 2017, beginning of 2018. So I avoided the big crash 
but got the profits. And that that really is kind of what separated me from every other self-appointed crypto guru on the internet, of which there are thousands, most of whom have only been trading for a year or two, but already were, were drawing in subscriptions from followers for their amazing advice. And, and most of whom are anonymous as well. This is the astonishing thing. People pay thousands of pounds a year in subscriptions to all these people who just call themselves Crypto King or the Crypto Kid or whatever. They don't wow. even know who these people really are. But, you know, so, so I kind of proved that I was different and that through my 20 years of trading experience, I actually kind of knew what I was doing and, and, and those guys didn't. And so I got, I got the publishing deal. Excellent. So you say in your book, cryptomania, you mentioned the word cryptomania. Do you think it's a mania? I think it was a mania. Yeah. I don't really think it's a mania anymore. Uh, there are still some insanely religious, sort of almost religious cheerleaders for cryptocurrency in the crypto community. Some of the main voices that you might hear even on things like CNBC, some of the people who are invited on to speak are just absolutely certain that Bitcoin's going to become the biggest thing ever and that its price is going to double and double and double and double and double. Now, I'm certainly not ruling out that possibility. I think it could well double and double and double and, and they have a good argument. And I agree with many of the things that they say, but it's the sheer certainty. And as I saw with gameplay, you know, however great the prospects are for a company or for a cryptocurrency, nothing is certain in this world. And if you put all your eggs in one basket, you could end up with no eggs or broken eggs or eggs all over your face or whatever, whatever analogy you want to draw. There's only one certainty that there's no certainty. I guess that's a, that's a good market maxim. But yeah. you say in your book, the rise of cryptos is one of the most extreme market events in all human history. What, what did you mean by that in terms of extreme market events, just because of it, the, its massive rise or because of how it could change the face of the way we use money across the world? I think I was thinking more of the former. In terms of extreme market event, I meant the incredible rise uh, percentage-wise of Bitcoin initially, and then literally hundreds and hundreds of other cryptocurrencies. I mean, you know, it's, it's as if, one of the world's is as if a major stock exchange just suddenly arose from nothing with hundreds and hundreds of shares all priced in the millions or the billions. So it was kind of a, an absolutely phenomenal market event in that sense, though you might not define it even as a market event if you don't believe that non-regulated exchanges really are proper exchanges. You know, some people would argue that. In fact, I was arguing with um, uh, a friend of mine just yesterday about exactly this because uh, she works for a major investment bank and works in anti-money laundering and that kind of area and compliance. And as far as she's concerned, the markets that I trade aren't even real markets. They're not proper markets and I shouldn't even be allowed to trade them. And it's, and it's ridiculous and it's, and it's uh, outrageous. Though, of course, Bitcoin itself is now traded in lots of regulated and legal markets, um, not least uh, in in the UK and Europe, you can spread bet them using the usual suspects like IG and CMC and those big companies. Uh, they all offer Bitcoin and the major cryptocurrencies now and also uh, in their CFD products as well. 
uh, contracts for difference. There are lots of different ways. And also, of course, there are futures contracts uh, listed on regulated markets in the US now. So, so it's not completely the Wild West anymore, but most cryptocurrencies, the vast majority are still traded on unregulated exchanges in all kinds of dodgy countries. And, and that's why I spend quite a lot of time, as you'll know in my book, uh, giving advice about how to minimize the risk that you're taking when you use these unregulated exchanges where your money isn't protected, um, partly by spreading your money around uh, different exchanges so that you don't have too much of your capital in any one exchange, and also various other methods I describe as well. You also describe how to look out for new cryptocurrencies and how to value them using your, your equation. Do you want to talk about that? Because nobody else, I've, from what I've seen, has talked about actually valuing a cryptocurrency because, of course, it's very difficult to. Yes. Um, you know, I can't claim that I invented these equations. <laughs> They're not mine. They're not mine. Um, they were actually a guy. This this is going to make the equation sound sound really credible. But a guy called Willy Wu was the. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> was the. Sorry, Willie, for the uh, invention. He's credited with the invention of some of these equations. And effectively, what he's doing is adapting uh, the price earnings ratio from you know stocks and shares trading, obviously. Network value to transactions ratio is uh, what he came up with. It's kind of like the PE ratio. So it's a bit like market cap, isn't it? So like the, the overall value of the, uh, so the capitalization of the currency involved, the crypto involved. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of similar to that. They calculate something that they call network value. Uh, the MVT ratio is network value over daily transaction volume. So more than the actual market. Uh, but what they're saying is that the, the the market cap is kind of analogous to the number of people who are regularly using the cryptocurrency and how much it's traded. Sort of how how liquid it is. You know, I put this stuff in the book because it is the, the fundamentals that exist at the moment, but it's very early days and I'm not really happy with these definitions, to be perfectly honest. I don't think that they're incredibly useful. And, and here's the reason why, because the problem with uh, network value, the, the amount of activity and the amount of people using Bitcoin is that it goes up and down with the price. So it's not very useful in that respect because you know, when Bitcoin was at its peak at the end of 2017, the network value was absolutely massive because loads of people were buying and selling Bitcoin. And then when the price falls, people lose interest and the network value goes down. So, so what you've got is a kind of vicious circle between these two metrics and then a virtuous circle when it's going upwards. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of a tautology, I suppose. It's, a, it's a similar problem, though, to market value and everything else. So the, people assume that, say, market capitalization for a company is a legitimate valuation metric in the same way that Let's say uh, uh, the value of the value of a road, the houses on a road, it equates to the last a multiple of the last of the last house sold. But the, the, these aren't real values because you know. Let's say, uh, well, I mean, where's where's the Nasdaq trading now? It's but, almost at eight thousand. Yes, by the looks of it. Okay, eight. so it's actually above. So it's above the first dot com dot com boom high. Oh yeah. But my point is that unless you are re one really lucky uh, son of a bitch. You, only one person could actually have basically exploited that valuation by getting out at the top. 
Because if everyone else had, had piled in as well, then the market would have collapsed, which it did anyway. All I'm saying is you can't just extrapolate from, from one, one trade and say, well, at this price, the market is worth X. Because, because then assuming that other people pile in, the price will naturally correct. So those, those valuations, equity market cap and property prices on, on my road, they're not real values. They're, they're, they, they, they are predicated on the idea that, that everything can clear at the same price, which is a nonsense. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with you. I think the most important thing to remember is that it's the price action that's key. I mean, as a pure technical analyst, technical trader, I, I can see that there's there's elements of that, obviously, in your book, Glenn, where you talk about charting. And what I found interesting about this this starting point for valuation is because you're not just talking about trading, say, the big five cryptocurrencies. Interestingly, you were looking at other you know cryptocurrencies that might be the new kids on the block that could be then breaking out into you know more established coins. So I, I thought that that's not something that I really thought about doing. You know, looking out for these other coins. I just thought crypto trading is the big five or however many you want to have in your universe. But your book said, no, actually, there's, there's, there are others out there that you can look out for. In some ways, it's a bit like trading penny shares, where they're, they're either, you know, go to the moon or disappear. And, but that's, you know, you pay mm. your money, you take your choice. Exactly. But also, of course, there are mid caps, just like there are in, in the stock market as well. And those mid caps get ignored by uh, in, in cryptocurrency. Those mid caps get ignored by pretty much everybody and no articles are ever written about them. But in the stock market, you trade the mid caps quite happily. Everybody does. You wouldn't just, well, you know, serious traders don't tend to just stick to the main uh, few companies. You don't just buy Tesco and BP and that's about it. But yeah, in the world of cryptocurrencies, that's exactly what most people do. They just buy the like the big few issues and forget about both the mid caps and the and the penny share equivalents. Do you think, um, <clears throat> and obviously nobody has a crystal ball, so nobody knows exactly, but in your, in your opinion, do you think that uh, Ethereum will be a more established network coin than Bitcoin or is how do you, which do you think will be the dominant coin going forward well like i talk like i say about ethereum in my book the thing about it is that it's much more than just a cryptocurrency it's yeah. it's very different from bitcoin it's it's sometimes called the world computer it's a platform on which uh, hundreds of other cryptocurrencies have been built uh, so and and the actual ether itself the tokens that are traded uh, kind of are the oil in the machine of of whichever uh, app it's supporting. So it's a it's a very powerful and programmable platform, and that's what really inspired me about cryptocurrencies in the first place. You know, when Bitcoin was just Bitcoin, yeah, I was interested in it. I thought it was a fascinating concept, but it was when Ethereum came along and I could see the almost limitless possibilities because it was programmable, um, and that really excited me. Now, since I wrote the book, I'd say Ethereum has become somewhat eclipsed. Really? by Bitcoin. Oh. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's still very much used technologically, but there are some pretenders to its throne, you know, copycats or or not just copycats, but new cryptocurrencies that build on Ethereum's brilliant, brilliantness, and uh, <laughs> but then add some extra brilliantness of their own. 
Uh, the word's not brilliantness, is it? What's the brilliance? Brilliance. Brilliance. That's it. I was actually thinking brilliantity. No, that's not a word either. Is it? Yeah, brilliance. <laughs> there are some new cryptocurrencies that kind of are even better in in a technological sense. Yeah. So Ethereum again is you know it's one of the first and it's one of them, but it's not necessarily going to be the the one that conquers the world. And as as you'll know from my book, I I, I mentioned lots of lots of examples of companies that were there first had the first mover advantage, but then uh, weren't the ones that succeeded. I mean, Netscape amongst internet browsers is the classic example because it dominated almost 100% of the browser market in the mid-90s. Everybody was using it. We were all using it. And so it seemed a dead cert to be one of the winners in the dot-com race. But then within a few years, uh, virtually nobody was using it at all. It had been eclipsed by Internet Explorer. Well, I, d- I remember the the had kind of front row seats to the first dot-com bubble through working at Merrill Lynch in London at the time. And I remember the phrase, um, the pioneers get the arrows, the settlers get the land, which I always thought was rather a nice one. Yeah. Yes, that's a very good point. And, and that's, that's a nice kind of anti-maxim to the first mover advantage thing that most people talk about. So, yeah, that's useful for people to keep in mind when thinking about Bitcoin and Ethereum. Bitcoin may well go to the moon, but then... You know, well, there's no necessity in the Bitcoin world. People, when you're ensconced in it, like I am, and you talk to cryptocurrency people all the time, their whole life is surrounded by Bitcoin and Bitcoin related chat. So as far as they're concerned, it's not just a household name, which it arguably is. I mean, most people in the world have now heard of Bitcoin, but to them, it's it's so absolutely entrenched in the in the infrastructure of everything that they know that they just assume there's no way that it could be supplanted by anything else. It just It's just impossible. But I've got just about enough kind of psychological distance from those people to know that they're just wrong. It could be supplanted. Yeah. It just could. Well, just we know that just anything can be, can't it? But yeah. I, I guess what's interesting about it is if you go to a dinner party, um, there's going to be more people who don't understand Bitcoin and you'll you probably find yourself pinned in a corner by a group of people having to explain it. And then even at the end of it, they probably still don't really understand it. And until I think it becomes mainstream where you pop down to the shops and you're paying for things in Bitcoin, um, you know, there's there's still a long way for it to go, which is a positive in the sense that it's it's certainly not, uh, although people have heard of it, they, they're not actually using it. So there's far more people who could get involved with trading it and using it as a, as money. I just I just want to say on that, I mean, at this point in time, I don't, I, I'm inclined to think that there's a damn good chance that it might never emerge as an everyday yeah, payment mechanism for money. I don't, I, I'm inclined to think that the problems with Bitcoin's scalability and speed and cost, whilst there are enormous efforts being made Herculean efforts are being made to try and solve these problems. Mm. Um, nonetheless, I think there's a, a damn good chance that it will just never happen. It will never become an everyday payment mechanism. So, And in fact, a lot of people in the Bitcoin world are kind of slowly coming to that conclusion, which is why the mantra now is that it is a store of value mm. um, like gold rather than a payment method like 
like the dollar or the pound. So I f- that's kind of how it's emerging now. People are expecting the price of it to go to the moon because they think that really it shouldn't stop until it's worth at least as much as gold is, you know, in total market cap, I mean. This is, this is something I struggle with, though, the concept of store of value, because if we talk, limit, say, to just a Bitcoin, so that, uh, I'm right in saying, am I, that the, the supply of Bitcoin is, is capped at 21 million. Yes. And most of those coins have now been mined. So uh, yep. they, they will yeah, be, they they will be mined priority. over the next, I think, hundred years or so. Yeah, so seventeen million of them have been mined, approximately, and, and there's another four million over the next hundred years. Yeah, but they've got they've got no physical form, so they're essentially they're essentially electronic. They're purely digital, so they're they're, they're it's a bit like saying that you know the data in a, a film that I stream, you know, that data has that data is a store of value, but is it really? So I mean, what? Where I guess I'm coming from is the, the reason people attach a value to gold is because it has physical form. It's ex- extremely malleable. It's quite beautiful, et cetera, et cetera. You can stroke it. You can polish it. Bloody, bloody, bloody. People wear it as jewelry. And it's been a form of money for 5,000 years. I, I struggle to make that mental leap to wear digits, albeit in, in a form that is ultimately capped. So it's finite in the same way that gold's finite. But the difference with gold is you can carry it around and you can wear it. You can't wear you can't wear bits and bytes. So where, where's the store of value argument in in that sense? I, that's what that's where I I can't make that leap of faith that the sort of true believers can. I take your point. I do, and I've thought about this quite a lot. It is it is a tricky one because, as you say, gold has got such a long pedigree as something that people value, even though. I mean, you look, I would argue that gold is gold has a bit of an industrial use, obviously, but but fun, but fundamentally, mostly it's just a nice, shiny thing that people like to look at. And that's a very, very subjective concept. Um, in fact, in the developed world, as you'll see, you know, things have changed massively just in the last 30, 40 years with regard to gold jewelry and so on. You just people still have gold wedding rings, but you don't really see people with with a lot of gold necklaces and that kind of thing. It's just not well, I think cool. You, I think to be fair, cool you, do, you do in places like China and India. But yes, maybe but maybe you will less so as they industrialize as well and start thinking that gold looks a bit tacky. Maybe, maybe, you know, that's so. So what I'm saying is it's maybe that'll happen. Maybe it won't. Who knows? But, maybe the Mr. But, T look will come back. Yeah, maybe. But it's, the point is, it's a very subjective thing. Um, so in that sense, I would compare it to Bitcoin in that Bitcoin and the value of it is also a very subjective thing. And you speak to a lot of millennials and a lot of younger people, and they see it as a very real thing because they've grown up with bits and bites as the very lifeblood, <laughs> the very essence of their existences. Yes. Uh, they have no problem with putting a value on Bitcoin, considering you know most of these kids um, including to some degree myself, have grown up with the idea of uh, putting value on digital tokens on various games that they play, and that these tokens have real value because you can buy real, real in inverted commas, uh, things within the games that enhance your experience. You're kind of effectively paying for services rather than goods, but you kind of see them as goods when you're in the game buying them with these tokens. So, you know, people who have grown up with that kind of thing, it's very natural to them to see Bitcoin as an inverted commas real thing. Um, But having said all of that, I then take your point, Tim. 
I do take your point that gold has had real value in people's heads for uh, uh, thousands of years, whereas this Bitcoin thing has been around for literally five minutes. And I, you know, I have to take that into consideration that the length of time that gold has survived as something that people value is you know, that's very important. And that's, that makes it a lot more meaningful, I guess. There's something I'm trying to channel, Paul, are you familiar with it? There's a, there's a, there's a phrase, somebody's law, and I know Taleb's used it. It's the longer, the longer something lasts, yes, the longer it's, it's, it's going it's, to last. It's, it's the, it's the Lindy law. It was the, Lindy law, that's yeah, it was the, the cheesecake. It was a place where you got cheesecake in it, or it was a cafe basically, I think in New York, but it was, um, apparently the cheesecake there was terrible, but what, what the <laughs> actors there noticed was that if a play or show was on for six months, it would last another six months. If it was on for 12 months, it would last another 12 months. So the books that Taleb reads are ones that are, you know, timeless. They, they, they've been around for hundreds of years. And so we can only truly get the value of something over many, many years, not, not just such a short space of time. It, so whilst it does, whilst it's quite logical and, and obvious, um, it, it also adds weight, I guess, to, to gold, but that doesn't mean that Bitcoin won't be around in a hundred years time. Although I've said that, and and this is something that I've not heard many other people talk about, is that if we do get quantum computing, then that's mm. the end of Bitcoin. And we will get quantum computing at some point because we're on the cusp of it. And or it does exist, but in a very basic form. But when we get to the point where it's properly usable, that that's it. That's the end of it. So the internet... I, I- I learned quite a lot about that recently. Oh, good. And, oh, I'm really pleased. And, quite <laughs> and uh, basically, the, the upshot is that quantum computing, yeah, it, it could well kind of invalidate, say, the current form of Bitcoin and various other cryptocurrencies. Um, but the thing is, quantum computing as a usable thing, as something that can crack codes, is still quite a long way off, according to that. Well, basically, I was, I was consulting proper quantum computing experts to find out uh, what what the uh, realistic chances of it um, becoming an important and worrying feature are in the near future. The yeah. near, future, near future, nothing to worry about. Yeah. The sort of f- slightly further away future, like sort of 10 years time, yeah, maybe, maybe if they really um, uh, get moving on it very quickly, it could be something to worry about then. But I think the, the key point uh, that the one expert I spoke to made was that uh, cryptocurrencies themselves are evolving so very quickly that you know we will have ample warning that quantum computing is getting to a stage where it can crack really really hard codes and so then of course the software of cryptocurrencies will evolve uh, in tandem in order to kind of keep up with that so cryptocurrencies aren't necessarily doomed because of quantum computing uh, though in their current form they would be vulnerable yes yeah i, I think quite honestly if somebody has a breakthrough and makes a quantum computer that can crack all of this, and let's face it, if we're talking about the Lindy law, there's no way that Bitcoin itself can last 100 years if this is the case. Um, if we think that within 10 years, quantum computing is possible, there will be a transition into different cryptocurrencies that are generated by quantum computers, is that if you had one, what you would do is you just wouldn't tell anybody. You would just start mining coins much quicker than everybody else and then you'd have a period where i think they'd all just go down so that's another reason why i'm a chartist and i like to read charts because you often see 
problems in a market way before anybody's talking about it. And, yeah. and then you would see a big lurch downwards and nobody would know why. And you'd get the usual, oh, you know, we think there was a big seller or something like that. Um, but then, you know, from being able to read price action, you know, when something's just a normal correction and something's very unusual and watching the price yeah, closely it gives you a lot of, a lot of clues. Like you spotted the, the, the top of the market in 2008 and you were obviously very in tune with how quickly a market can go down and go into panic mode when everybody else, all the economists are running around saying, ah, oh, nothing to see here. Everything's fine. US job numbers are fine. There will be no recession. There will be no, you know, no economic collapse. And then six months later, after the, the, the stock market's already looking for the recovery, they're, all their, their data starting to look terrible. And then they're, then they're looking at, uh, you know, they're saying after the horse is bolted that the markets are going to go down, which I suspect, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, is why you, why you personally look at charts yourself. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Because uh, I'll give you I'll give you a nice example of that. I was just looking through, uh, I was reading an article about the 2008 crash the other day, a sort of look back, and it, it, it came up with a list of, uh, it's a sort of a snapshot from a newspaper from the end of, t of 2007 with all the Wall Street analysts' predictions from all the major banks <laughs> uh, for 2008, the S&P 500. And... Now, at the end of 2007, as, as you'll see from my book, I was very, very on the lookout for the crash. It hadn't happened yet, but you know, the market was turning. The chart of the S&P 500, uh, the trend was turning as far as I was concerned. And, you know, that wouldn't necessarily meet, lead to a crash. I, again, I, there are no certainties That's and I true. never say this is definitely going to happen. But I was on the lookout for it and I was ready to start shorting, um, which, of course, I, I did in the end. As I, as I talk about, I, I um, shorted the market and turned a, a spread bet account of Three thousand pounds into a hundred thousand pounds in pretty short order, and and I wrote about that in the Times a few years ago, uh, an article about that explaining sort of what happened. But the and you know I was just an ordinary private trader, as you can tell by the fact that I was just risking three thousand pounds as opposed to three million pounds. I was a journalist. I was a TV reporter for ITV News at the time, and. The thing, the thing with these analysts was that, yeah, so they were all giving bumper predictions for 2008 and saying, you know, the market's going to go up to this level and that level. And I noticed one of the guys there, uh, I'm not going to name him by name, but he gave a bumper prediction for 2008, worked for a major bank. Same guy resurfaced in recent years as a cryptocurrency trading expert. No. Um, and he's on CNBC quite regularly uh. giving ridiculous predictions and in fact throughout the whole of 2018 this guy was predicting that by the end of 2018 the price of bitcoin would have been far far higher than it was before at uh, the beginning of 2018 and, and as for anybody who watches the price would know it actually hit rock bottom at the end of 2018 the price hit about three and a half thousand dollars per coin at its lowest and this guy was predicting tens of thousands of dollars per coin for the end of 2018. And I just kind of wondered to myself, how do these guys just keep getting paid year after year? And how do they keep getting taken seriously after the, after completely saying the opposite of what actually happened? You know why? Well, you know, it, it's the reason for that is because only people like you and me look at what they say. 
there's it's an absolute fascination that I have about how people can get the market so wrong all the time and yet continue to do that. But the thing is, only a trader really listens to what other people say. So, you know, if I if I see someone on CNBC, the first thing I'll do is listen to what they say about the markets. The next time I see them, I'll see whether they were right or, or wrong. And, you know, nobody gets it right all the time. But if they're consistently wrong, then you know not to listen to them. But most people also, you have to remember that when they are telling you something um, that is against the crowd, then you're in the minority. So in other words, when, as we saw very recently, we we talked about how, or I talked about how I thought Bitcoin might be near a low and it might be ready to go up. That was at the point when everybody was saying, you know, that's it, it's over, it's finished, it's going to zero. Now, Mm. nobody wants to hear that because everybody thinks it's finished, it's gone, you know, not interested in that, come on, let's just trade something else. So if if you come on and say that on a show, then people are like, yeah, 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 that's what we think. Yeah, everybody come on and listen. But they're, they're not going to take the effort to go back and say, actually, was that guy right? Did he say the right thing there or not? Now, not everybody gets it right all the time, but I, my, my history is working with economists in the city and they get it so wrong so often that we use them as a reverse indicator. And this guy, I think, is perfect as a reverse indicator. Now, I would just predicate this with just one one bit of information that we've had some really great economists on this show who've kind of changed my view about, you know, all the economists, all economists aren't the same. Some of them really get the markets and are fantastic. Um, For example, we had a guy called Charles Ferguson who was on at the start of this year. And he said the markets, the stock market's gone down, but according to his valuations and analysis, there was no reason why it shouldn't go back up. And it was a buy. And it, my God, he was he right? I mean, he was just right on the money. Fantastic economist. So, but if you find just one- just written his name down. I'm going to look him up. Yeah, after we finished uh, he was great, you know. But this guy who you won't name, I'd love to hear him because he sounds like, you know, he's got the gift to just get it wrong just at the right time. And he's he's following the 90% who get it wrong all the time. And so it, unless he, he probably isn't trading, but it unless- you know, he learns from that and he's got no no reason to learn from it if he's not trading. If he's just talking in the markets, it's like you're like any other economist who makes predictions. You're not there's no skin in the game, as Taleb says, with these people. So they'll never yeah. they'll never feel it. So therefore they can be wrong a million times. And also they have an incentive because they they're usually working for a bank or you know, some organization that has an has um, an interest in things going up. So they always yeah. just predict things are going up. Whatever it is that they're talking about, whatever asset, it's going up. Exactly, exactly. And I, I love also the bit in your book, which, which you talked about how working as an editor, uh, sorry, working, you know, for a, for a news organization, you would have to come up with a story as to why the market had moved. And that was yeah. so interesting because I worked in a bank and the economists on the trading desk or the an- analysis desk, I worked with two economists, I was a technical analyst, and they would receive calls from, say, Reuters, who would say, why Sterling gone down today? And, well, I don't know. And they'd say, well, actually, it looks like this number was weak. Yeah, it was because this number was weak. And then they print that on the screen, and then other traders read it and say, oh, yeah, Sterling went down because. And then why did Sterling go up? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a continual game of penning the tail on the donkey, and it's all yeah. and so much of this information is after the fact like i can tell you the weather forecast for yesterday perfectly and that's all these people are doing but 
That's why the news flow is such a waste of time because it's not such a waste. It's not telling you anything about the future. It's just telling you about what's happened, and we can do that all day long. I, I can. Yeah. You can take one piece of news, and you can twist it to make it positive and negative, whichever way you want. You can say interest rates are going up, the stock market should go up because that's positive for stocks because stocks because the economy is strong. And then you can reverse it and just say interest rates are going up, therefore people will take money out of the stock market and put it into bonds. So it's negative. So every- That is exactly what we used to do. Yeah. I mean, while you were talking, I've just tracked down that bit that you were referring to in my book where I kind of give a uh, a pretend conversation that's very, very yes. much based on reality. And I'm saying, so here's the reality of how the news business actually works. Um, this conversation between me and a hypothetical news editor. News editor says to me, Glenn, the market's down 30 points. Tell people why. And I say, but there's no obvious reason why. And he says, well, well then find a reason. And then 30 <laughs> minutes later, Glenn on air, the market's really? down 30 points today after the inflation figure rose again to, to what some analysts are calling a worryingly high level. And then it says one month later, the news editor says, Glenn, the market's up 30 points now. Tell people why. And I say, but there's no obvious reason why. He says, then find a reason. 30 minutes later, I'm on air saying, the market's up 30 points today after the inflation figure rose again to what some analysts are calling a very healthy level. Brilliant. So it's like, that's that's how it works. Exactly. You, say, you use exactly the same economic data to explain whether it's gone up or whether the market's gone down. It's you just use the same data and you just change a couple of words. And before you know it, it's well, what am I doing? I'm going to have my old bosses phoning me up asking for my old wages back. For So, so as, as the co-creator of the hashtag, the Twitter hashtag financial media clutching at straws, I feel obligated to ask, are you, do you still have any links with ITV, Glenn? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't do reporting for them anymore. No. So my question, I knocked that on the head a couple of years ago. My, my question would be, and and I'm I, I'm trying to be objective, but clearly you can tell which way I which way I'm coming from. Do you see any future for what we might call traditional mainstream media? Um, in the next few decades, definitely, because uh, because the older generations are still very, very attached to 24-hour rolling news, for example, um, and and news bulletins, TV news bulletins in general. You know, we talk about, you remember when we were kids and people would go, square eyes, you like these people, what, what are they becoming? They just sit there, couch potatoes, they sit in front of the TV all day. You know, that was the big scare about what young people were turning into. Well, now those young people are old people and they just stare at their, <laughs> some of them, some of them do, at uh, Rolling News. Mm. Um, so there is a pretty healthy future, though slowly declining, I guess, for major news uh, organisations. Um, also, the brand names are are seem to be seeping into the new world to some degree. So even though the actual TV channels themselves might decline in the longer term, the names like CNN. Uh, if you look at, you know, they have loads of Facebook followers, loads of people follow them on Twitter. So younger people are still kind of in tune and have some trust for what these organizations are saying, though they might just access that news online through tiny little video reports or just little tweets rather than watching the actual news channels themselves. Uh, that reminds me something. I, we'll have to put it in the show notes. I've just found it, the, the link for it now. It's it's a great piece from the New Yorker that I came across earlier. It's called Limiting Your Child's Fire Time, a guide for concerned paleolithic parents. And it basically starts, 
According to the most recent cave drawings, children nowadays are using fire more than ever before. And it's no wonder. Fire has so many wonderful applications, such as cooking meat, warming the home, and warding off wild animals in the night. And then he goes, but, but so, you know, blah, blah, blah. You, know, you don't want to be that guy, but you also want to make sure that your child engages in other activities like mammoth hunting and the gathering of rocks <laughs> and bones with which to make tools. So how do you set appropriate boundaries for your child on fire usage without jeopardizing the family unit so crucial to the survival of the species? It's absolutely <laughs> tremendous. It's very, very funny. Yeah, that, that hits the nail right on the head, doesn't it? Yeah, it, exactly. It doesn't matter what the new technology is. The, the media will always put up scare stories about it that is destroying our youth and warping their minds, whether it's uh, TV or video games or being on your iPad too much, as my children are. I mean, you know, I'm as bad as anybody. So I'm, I tell my children, oh, you're spending too much time on the iPad. And, you know, the kind of apps that they use are sometimes a little bit, I don't know, make me feel a bit uncomfortable. I, uh, I, I make sure they don't talk to strangers. I suppose that's, yeah. that's my main job, isn't it? Other than that, I kind of leave them to it. Yeah, it's um just just to make the point actually you, you were you know talking about th- this is how people consume news and to be fair to the news organizations they're only just giving people what they want or appear to want if if they didn't want it they wouldn't do it so you know you can complain about what's in the sun but if people you know didn't want it they wouldn't buy it and it the, the news that wouldn't exist as a medium that, so that, that's a fair that's a fair point but there's also a distinction between want and need and what people want and what people need are not necessarily the same thing and you can make the same point in relation say to particularly to financial financial news and financial advice because people are drawn people feel on a band people in media feel on a band to deliver what people want but actually I, in my view they should be spending a lot more time exclusively spending their time on what people actually need and uh the, the mentioned dispatches here goes to jason Zweig, who writes for the wall street journal uh and he says he tries to he tries to give people he tries to give his readers what they need rather than what they want and what they need is basically more, really just kind of constant iteration of, of the basics of, of of the basic rules but people feel people feel they have this 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 need to um you know get constant information constantly be bombarded with data and statistics and noise and it's desperately unhealthy for everybody. I was just going to say that that falls under the category of being inverted commas informed like if you're being told something constantly you feel like you're being informed but you're not you're not really. I I, I understand that drive I mean you know I've spent many years on the inside of the media and then outside it kind of scoffing at this kind of thing really and just and just thinking it's absolutely ridiculous that people demand answers to questions that are often unanswerable particularly when those answers involve predicting things because let's face it i mean the whole world should be well aware by now but for some reason isn't that predictions are nearly always utterly worthless. I mean, enough studies have been done showing that economists' predictions of inflation or interest rates or whatever are pretty much like uh, throwing darts blindfold at a, di- a dartboard or a monkey could do it just as well. Or, you know, well, Mark any- Carney certainly does a fairly good job of doing it. Of what? Of being a monkey throwing darts at a dartboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, quite. And but you know, whether it's economists or central bankers or just media pundits, predictions of where the stock market's going to go or where the economy is even going to go are usually no better than worthless. So everybody should be, but isn't fully aware that predictions are pointless and that we shouldn't listen to people who make them. But but we do carry on listening and and quite often it's because of desperation, just for some kind of certainty in this in this difficult world in which we live. 
negative. And I find myself, I actually found myself on the other side of it. About six months ago, I was trading the S&P 500 and, and, and American stocks generally. And you know how we had that the market turned around and it started falling in what looked like it was going to be a proper crash. Yes. It will look like to me as a chart trade. Yeah. So it looked to you like that as well, Paul, yeah. by the sounds of it. Exactly. And, and then it turned around it turned and around. went back up. Yeah. And it, and it kind of, it knocked me for six, the fact that that was happening, um, because it was, it wasn't out of the realms of possibility, but historically speaking, it was extremely unusual for a chart to do that, to make such an about turn after making such a, a dramatic and, and, and very definite move downwards. Um, and so I started doing that. I started looking around desperately for answers. And I started listening to anybody oh, who came up with any Glenn. kind of plausible explanation. I was I was searching online for tweets. And it's like, oh, well, this guy, this guy seems clever. And he's saying, well, it's going back up for this reason. Or, or this guy is saying, no, it's just temporary. And it's going to plummet even further, definitely. And, you know, I start, you need to come back I, on the podcast for therapy if that happens again. We'll talk you out. Yes, it's uh, good. I would appreciate that because it did me no good whatsoever listening to those people. I mean, there's so, there's only one person worth listening to, and that's yourself. And you you work that out pretty early on, so don't lose that. You know that there there really isn't any point in listening to anybody else. And no, that was a temporary aberration in in my life. That uh, that S and P five hundred thing. But, I'm determined to never uh, to never relapse again. But it's, in that way, I was like an alcoholic who kind of had been had been absolutely clean for. 15 20 years yeah and then just re relapsed temporarily it was like it's, right it, I'm, I'm not doing that again it's so easily done and and i know the move you mean because it was when they came out with the news headlines that the hedge funds were selling the vix at a you know enormous clip and the vix chart looked like it was turning and i don't know if you follow the technicals on the vix but as a little tip um, being a good chart reader, you can spot when the market's going to turn sometimes ahead of the S&P by looking at the VIX. And it just mm. made this really nice little base. And then it just shot up and the S&P crashed or came off, not crashed, but it came off very aggressively. The Russell 2000, which is still off its high, by the way, which is not a great sign. Um, mm. You know, that, that that's a big fly in the ointment for, for the... Yeah, it's way off its high. Yeah, so that, that that's that's worrying me. But, you you know, you've got to go... You have to go long on a new high. So, you know, the fact that the S&P's broken into a new high means you, you've got to buy it. But it, that doesn't mean it's without its problems, you know. And so watching watching sort of for signs of weakness very carefully and is the, the best bit of advice really but at the moment the technical signal signals bullish but i know exactly what you meant by that that really felt like it was building up to a big reversal but as mm. soon as that that vix crashed back down again then it was like mm, no let's come back a little too far for this to be valid um but anyway so yeah it's it's interesting how you how you say that because it is so easy to be drawn into Basically, people who make very strong, big predictions is what what kind of drives interest. So if I say, you know what, I think Bitcoin's going to go to two hundred thousand, suddenly everybody's like, oh wow, that's 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 a big call, and then everybody wants to listen to that. Um, that sounds much better than saying, actually, you know, the probability of it going up here is maybe seventy percent, but there's a thirty percent chance it's going to go down, and that's how the markets really work. They're probabilistic. Mm. They're not. It's not absolute. So you might. Exactly. When I contribute to articles, that's the kind of thing, you know, I, I'm, I'm much more, I take my, a much more kind of uh, 
perhaps this will happen, perhaps yeah. that'll happen. Here are the various possibilities. Exactly. And, and, you know, if people ask me, I'll tell them how they can trade off those possibilities and how they can make money off those possibilities. You don't need to be able to predict the future to make money trading. It's it's just not necessary. Exactly. People want to be able to predict. It's impossible. But it doesn't matter that it's impossible because, you know, I like you, I will trade off certain patterns and breakouts and, and you know, indicators of, of, of various kinds that have been proven to work as, as you'll know from my book, you know, I give a lot of academic references for, for, for chart when it comes to charting, I only trust the stuff that's proven to work over long periods of time, over a lot of back testing. I don't trust any of the indicators that, that people have invented that yeah. don't have any kind of empirical basis to them because they, you know, they've just been invented and they're, they're no more valid than, than any other hypothetical invention of exactly. an indicator. Exactly. There could be something that's as strong as 70 80% that's going to happen, but there's always a 20% chance it won't. And so when you make a prediction, you have to make it with, with that in mind. And I am going to ask you where you think Bitcoin is going to go in the future, but anyone who knows anything about markets knows that if as soon as we come off air, you might change your mind for whatever reason. You might see some other chart pattern or setup, or it might break a certain level or move in a way that is unusual for that particular market. And it completely invalidates your view. So, yeah. So there's no, I mean, look, I, I at least don't, uh, I try and kind of stay in normal people's, <laughs> normal people's headspace by um, talking about the pot, the different possibilities that are in my head. But there is one, uh, one trader, for example, a, a very old guy who I follow, um, who, has a habit of going even further and basically saying, this is what's happening. And it's like, it's a definite thing. So he's like, you know, it's say you've got a trend that's just going very strongly up. He will just say, Bitcoin is going up. And, and then when it starts going down, people will write to him and say, you said it was going up, but now it's going down. And he gets really angry and he writes back saying, that was my view at that particular moment yes. that it was going up. Yes. Now my view is that it's going down. And, and they go, well, you've changed your mind then. And he's like, yes, I have changed my mind. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know, and this is a guy who's made a lot of money trading over a 40, 40 something year career. There you go. Uh, Exactly. But, you know, he he has no truck with people who who question his changing of mind and he doesn't understand why they have a problem with it, really. But I think, uh, you know, humans, humans don't really work like that. His brain works like that. And mine does to some extent. But but most people don't. I think that's also because in, in the real in the real world, if I can call it that, that's not how things work. So, for example, if I say to you, you know, what's the best way to get to Birmingham from London? You'd say, well, up the M1. And then suddenly it might not be the best way because there's a crash, but somebody wants to know the best way. And they think that there's just one definite answer. They think, you know, if you want to make money and somebody has made money, then whatever they say is going to be right. But it's, it, it's, um, there's a, a trader called uh, Paul Tudor Jones who uses mm. charts to trade. And incidentally, I wanted to also make the point that um, so many people say you can't make money out of charts. And what I love about your book is, and about you, is that that's how you've made your money out of charts. So people who say it's impossible are basically saying that they can't do it. But it's yeah. Not, I mean, the proof is there. The I mean, there. not only have loads of people done it and have written books showing how they did it, 
Um, but also you could do a ton of backtesting across charts and not, and not, not cheating backtesting. You know, some people, when they, when they backtest using decades and decades of past data to test a, to test a particular trading technique, they, they do curve fitting uh, in order yes. to make their results look better. But you don't need to do that if you just choose some very, very basic trend following ideas, for example, and test them across futures markets going back many decades, including the current decade, you will find that there are some very basic strategies involving moving averages, for example, uh, moving Average crossover strategies that that just work year after year, decade after decade. They don't work every year. You know, you have good years and bad years, but over the decades, they're proven to just make money. So the idea that you can't make money off purely off charting is is ridiculous. I mean, it's just wrong. It's a wrong thing to say. So what I what I would suggest though is that it, it it's important that people find uh, an approach that works for their their own psychology, for their own personality. Yes. I'm, I'm not a trader by temperament. So as a result of that, I'm quite happy to do sort of longer term stuff. But because I can also see the merit in uh, a trading approach, particularly a trend following approach, we are more than happy to allocate capital, client capital to good trend following managers. So although we can't do that activity ourselves, we're more than happy to pass it out to someone who can. But for me, the, the recipe for disaster is giving advice to people, say, on, on lines of sort of regular trading commentary. But if if you're not really, if you're not really a trader by temperament, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be doing something else. Yeah, I I 100% agree Definitely. with you because because the problem is that even if you uh, identify, say, a moving average strategy which says buy here and sell there, and then buy here and then sell there, um, and even if you then program that strategy as an automatic trading strategy, as many people do, the problem is you're still a human being, and human beings will always be tempted to override their strategies when there are bad periods. So, you know, I go into a psychology a lot in the third part of my book, and the reason I do that that is because it's so crucially important because however great your strategy is if you're not kind of psychologically in tune with it as you say tim then uh you're going to override it and make mistake you are going to because everybody does if they're not in tune and they don't understand and, and intuitively feel how their strategy is working then when it goes through a bad period they will always get cold feet and pull their money out which of course we see happening on a on a much bigger scale with fund management it's always been the way with fund management you know a fund manager Manager will have two or three good years and everybody pours billions of dollars into their fund and then they have one or two bad years and everybody pulls the billions of dollars out of their fund just as the fund is starting to perform well again. So the people putting their money in don't get that fund manager's excellent long-term performance because they, they keep putting their money in and taking it out at the wrong times. You read, you read economics, uh, Glenn, didn't you? Yeah. If, if knowing now what you know, and if you had your time again, would you have still chosen economics or would you have chosen to do something else? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't have, is the <laughs> honest answer. Uh, I found economics at A-level level, level um, extremely interesting. And in fact, I'd been interested in economics since I was a little kid because my dad was fascinated by it. And we always chatted um, about stuff like that. And uh, yeah, once I got to university level economics, I became very disillusioned with it for the same reasons that that many thinking people become disillusioned with mainstream economics, because frankly, a lot of the theories are based on false assumptions. And then they go into far too much detail uh, mathematically, 
which based on false assumptions. So, you know, it doesn't it's like when you're doing actual maths, it's based on sound kind of fundamental laws of the universe. And then you do the hard maths, which comes from that. Whereas with economics, you make some assumptions that aren't really true at all, like that people are perfectly rational human beings who make rational economic decisions, for example. And then you make extremely complicated mathematical theories that are based entirely on those false assumptions. So I had a real problem with that at university. I'm, okay, so I'll admit it's useful to have that all that stuff as background knowledge, I suppose. It stood me in good stead in that sense. But I, I could have learned it by reading in my own time uh, rather than doing an entire degree that involved a lot of very unnecessary and faulty mathematics. There were two guys trying to, dis trying to define economics. One of them said, it's an entire scientific discipline of not knowing what the hell you're talking about. And yeah. The other person said, I take issue with your use of the word scientific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that pretty much sums it up. So I apologize to but, but, uh, so any to of my old tutors who are who are listening. So to that point, if not economics, and what I mean, I know what I would do. But before I give you my answer, what what would you have chosen instead if you if you if you if you felt that you'd want to go into something more like a sort of trading trading career? Uh, <laughs> I've never actually thought about this. What subject would I have done? Um. Maybe psychology. Psychology. Because for me, it would have, it would have been basically a, a toss up between psychology and history. But then, psychology. Yeah, maybe I'd have done history because psychology again has got a lot of theories that are based on false assumptions. Yeah. True, uh, too, like including, say, all of Freud's stuff, like the whole. Well, well hang on. I mean, again, because it, it then depends. Because presumably, the, I mean, I haven't studied psychology, but presumably there are testable hypotheses, testable science, as opposed to. So theoretical stuff. So yeah, a lot of the more recent is psychology is, uh, is really good, yeah. So, so the stuff that interests me would be the behavioral psychology and, and sort of behavioral finance stuff, which kind of draws from, you know, testable testable stuff done in effectively as close to laboratory conditions as you can get. So in other words, tests that actually have been, you know, done on real people and whatever. Whereas, you know, the idea, yeah, the idea that it's all Freud or Jung or whatever, yeah, that's, that's clearly, there's an awful lot of, you know, tendentious, contentious science in that exactly yeah the work of daniel kahneman for example um i talk about in my book um I, I talk about all that kind of modern behavioral psychology and i talk about a lot of the psychological biases that we all have inbuilt that are so important in determining our trading decisions and the mistakes that we make and even though it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to turn those biases on and off to actually make yourself not susceptible to those. Just the very fact of being aware of them and reading about them um, helps you to avoid them. It, you know, just like any self-awareness in life helps you to avoid avoid a lot of mis common mistakes. So, uh, so it's very important to understand those biases. The stuff that I've come across recently that I found most Lit, almost literally mind-altering is, is stuff relating to sort of brain science, and I'm, I'm struggling to, to think of the specific couple of books that that, that that make this thesis. But essentially, the argument goes, in summary, that we think of our brains as being the commander-in-chief, but the brain is actually closer to being the press secretary. In other words, yeah. by the time you know, so you, you you do stuff, you do you do an action, you do an activity, you do you you, you do something, and then the brain tells you afterwards why you did what you just did yeah. so, yeah. so much of this stuff is, is, is acting practically on a subconscious level it's certainly not it's certainly not happening as a result of a, a sort of logical 
rational mind. It's 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 almost in, completely instinctive, and then the brain will tell you afterwards why you did it. Yeah, so I would go really along with that. I, I totally, yeah, I've read some of the same stuff and I would totally go along with that. It's, it's, it is absolutely fascinating. And, and in fact, that experience that I just told you about with me mistiming the S&P 500 and, and getting all panicky about it and trying to find out what so-called experts think about it, that was kind of a bit of a wake-up call in that sense. Because I guess up until that point, and particularly because I just finished writing my book, The Crypto Trader, with all its rules and and discipline, and, and I was feeling a little bit kind of hubristic. I was feeling kind of uh, like, you know, I've got this trading thing sussed. I know what I'm doing. I'm sorted. <laughs> I kind of started to believe my own hype, I guess, to some extent. And then that S&P 500 doing something very unexpected just knocked me for six and made me realize that I'm a lot more a, a servant of my own emotions than I thought I was. And that I really need to spend the rest of my trading life just staying on top of that and being aware of it constantly because it's so easy to slip back into your natural modes of behavior and to start to to start to ignore my own rules that that I've you know that I've tabulated in a book to start just ignoring them because my heart tells me to. I've got a fantastic book for you, Glenn, um, that I read in the '90s, and it's called Zen in the Markets. And when you read it, when you read it, you'll you'll say, right, that's exactly what you've just done. There is what Zen in the Markets is about. It's about. Uh, in simple terms, it's about a trader who is very disciplined and, you know, thinks about each trade very carefully and does so with a certain amount of of you know, risk management, etc. And then gets to the point where they're making money, everything seems to be great. So they start to take trades that he starts to take trades that he wouldn't normally take. You know, oh, I'll just have a punt on that. I've got plenty of money in the bank and, you know, just just take a, a gamble that wouldn't normally be a gamble for him and then a few of those trades bring brings him back down to oh yeah okay i shouldn't have done that i've broken my own rules so what is interesting about trading is that there's nothing new under the sun it's like it's everybody's been through it and the people that are successful have, have gone through these cycles and it's very difficult to explain to somebody until they actually experience it themselves. But that's why I think trading books are, are so good because it's not necessarily what you learn from them. It's what you experience after, afterwards and relate to and realize mm. how valuable it is. And that's what I like about your book because it's got a lot of that in it. It's, uh, But I think you'll really enjoy Zen in the Markets for that reason. Yeah, I will definitely read that if you recommend it then yeah. because, yeah, I would I would like to relate to somebody else, it's always nice to relate to other people's experiences and see that you're not the only one who's experienced that stuff. And actually, that that there's a, an interesting thing that I noticed what, since I started trading cryptocurrencies that's kind of to do with this, which is that because it was a brand new market that had sprung out of nowhere, right? And because most of the people trading these brand new markets uh, were brand new traders who had never traded anything before in their lives, they were millennials. Um, you might think that the patterns in the market would just look completely new as well and just not reflect previous markets that we've seen in the past. Yeah. But I found that 
absolutely not to be the case that in fact the cryptocurrency markets the ups and downs the the greed and the fear the waves and the patterns are just so much like every other financial market that has ever existed in fact almost even more so it's like it's almost like they're a platonic ideal of what markets what markets look like and what the chart patterns look like a lot of the chart patterns that existed during the so-called golden age of commodities trading in the 70s and 80s but that in recent years some of those markets have become a bit more difficult to trade perhaps because of a, a lot of professional traders trend following traders high frequency traders sort of messing up the nice patterns in those markets but then you go to the crypto markets you go to bitcoin and you see those same clear clean patterns yes. that were first being written about in the classic technical trading books a hundred years ago like uh, like edwards and mcgee for example yes. one of the classic books written almost a hundred years ago and they outline oh look there's a try this is what a triangle pattern looks like and it breaks out like this you see all that stuff in the crypto markets exactly as it was tabulated in the books 100 years ago yes exactly because human nature hasn't changed i think what people forget also is i know what you're talking about with the commodities and you know the 70s 80s and the periods they went through a long sideways range uh with some trends but not as aggressive as we saw coming up to 2005 2007 when i think oil hit i uh, was at 147 dollars but yeah, these these things are on much bigger cycles than pe- people's ability to stay in the market or their memory. So if you think about it, if you'd exited the market with your first bad trade in gameplay, then that would be your only experience and you wouldn't be involved in the markets anymore. Yeah. And so, well, that's what happened to most of my friends. Exactly. At the time. Just, they left and they never came back. Exactly. And so if you think about it, trading can only be there's a group of people, the majority, who don't know what they're doing, and there's a few people who do. And the people who don't know what they're doing turns over, so they never learn. And the people who do stay in the market. Now, there are waves within that themselves. You know, nobody has a straight line you know, trend of, of making money. That's impossible. Although I say impossible. You look at Stanley Druckermiller, he's done pretty damn well. Um, <laughs> but uh, but th- those by by virtue of the definition of what markets are there has to be a repeat of the mistakes that are made before so the longer you're in the markets the more you see these things repeat so we see the commodities bull market we saw when i was teaching technical analysis before 2000 um and i could see it was a bubble there weren't many examples of bubbles around so people didn't know what tulipomania was about they didn't know what a bubble was because they'd never seen one. And so the, the closest thing was the property market bubble and the stock market bubble of 1987. But getting into 2000... Or gold in sort of 1980? Yeah, but that... But I guess not many people were involved. Not, not many that, people though. would have been involved with that at all. And so when you got into 2000, you see, you know, uh, I just as a professional trader and, and analyst was seeing people bowl up to me and say, you know, I've, I know this guy is an expert in, in dot-com stocks and he's given me these fantastic tips. You know, you're, you're near the top of the market and then everything else is timing on the basis of technical analysis. And so you see it repeat. So they, we've had so many bubbles and they've 
it's just been incredible, really, because you've had... I think I... Did I mention in my book my mother-in-law? Yes, yes. That's a classic. Yeah. That's an absolute... That was it's an absolute classic. And, and if you... That's a classic sign of contrary opinion, where... Just for people listening, uh, <laughs> my mother... You know what we're talking about. My mother-in-law. Uh, it was when my mother-in-law at the end of 2017 asked me uh, how she could buy Bitcoin, because she just hearing about it nonstop in the media. She wanted to buy Bitcoin. And, th and this is a... A lady uh, without, you know, I'm sure she won't mind me saying, well, I said it in my book, so there's no getting away from it. But she, <laughs> so you black know, and she, white. <laughs> she's literally can barely switch on a computer. Right, I mean, she, you know, enough. she just never, she never in her in, in her working life never had to use a computer. And so in her retirement, she never used one either. You know, literally just as technophobic as you can imagine. And yet here she was going, can I buy some Bitcoin? And she's now head of customer service at Dixon's. It's amazing. Isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so she's going to do the turnaround. She's going to turn them around. I, I, um, I had a similar one in on. 2011. I got an email from somebody asking, how, how, so how do you buy silver? And it's like, really? You're interested in silver now? You know, why? <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating, really, how you get this. I was, I, 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 I was, Sorry, I, think still, I think I was going to say, I think silver's looking quite tasty. Is not a, in, not in 2011. Train. It wasn't Tim. No, I'm saying now. Now, yeah, now is a different yeah. matter. Actually, yeah, talking I've, of technical patterns, now. there's a there's a very interesting little technical pattern that you might see in gold. It's gone into a little triangle. So that yeah, I've, I own some now. I bought I bought a few weeks ago. Uh, was it a few weeks ago? Yeah, a couple of months on that ago. Breakout. I got back into gold when yeah, when the pattern started looking looking very attractive. And and yeah, it's it's just been going up. Not you know, it's been quite a kind of spiky journey, but it's it's I've held on to it and it's been going up ever since. And uh, and it's looking still very very positive. I think for the long term at this moment in time. At this moment in though, time, I listeners. might change my mind exactly uh, when we get off air. Exactly. So sorry. Yeah, that, that's that's absolutely right. And I you know I I stand by that. You know, you, people who are listening to this are obviously smart enough to know that they should make their own decisions, and it's not nobody can say for sure what what's going to happen and that's why i that's why i teach technicals. that's why you need trading rules well, yeah well that's why i teach technicals i always say don't listen to me i'm teaching you how to trade so you can trade for yourself i don't want you copying what i'm saying because i might change my view but having said that there are times when you can say well probabilistically this looks like it's it's got a better chance of going up um the only thing with gold at the moment is silver's not moving i still need silver to break out and that that's a little bit of a warning sign, but I do like the I do like the pattern on gold right now. It's a it, it, we should get a resolution within a couple of weeks, and it should be a sharp breakout to the upside. But I'd like silver to play ball, and it's not. Do you think gold can have a massive bull market without silver? Can that happen? It can happen. I mean, we're seeing palladium is obviously yes. in a very strong bull market. Yeah, is it, could it be gold and palladium it, that be the partners now instead of gold and silver? I don't know. Well, all it what means is if you're trading gold, it's leading the way, and as long as the price is moving up, then there's no reason to worry about silver. But where when it turns, you'll get a much bigger turn to the downside if silver hasn't participated in it, if that makes sense. So in other words, yeah. you know, we, we, we're seeing a breakout in the S&P into a new high, but we're not getting the confirmation from the Russell 2000. Does that mean you can't buy the S&P here? No, of course it doesn't. It means you should buy the S&P here because it's breaking into new highs and that's a technical signal. But does it mean 
that it's it's a, uh, a a all out bull market no it means you've got to be cautious you know it's not an aggressive like all the put your money all in the basket and then watch the basket it's like no you've got to buy it here but just be very careful that you're not getting participation by the whole market so therefore we have to be cautious and keep an eye close maybe put closer stops than you normally would because you're not getting the confirmation. So where we're off to the races and how how things tend to go is um, the market will pick up on gold going up and then mm. suddenly look around and go, oh, I've missed the boat on gold, inverted commas. What else hasn't moved yet? And they'll go, oh, silver hasn't moved. And they'll leap on it and you'll just get this really sharp move to the upside. And then you've got the, this proper participation. But for the moment, it's... It, I've drawn a downward trend and it's still in that downward trend and it's not broken mm. out yet. So I, I would, I would like it to, and uh, let me have a look at the level here. I'd like it to get through uh 15, well, $15, 50, $15 and a half for it to confirm it, it's uh, it's going to go up but at the moment. It's just been trading in a range really between the low of uh, May this year, which was $14 32 and the high point that it got uh it is kind of weird because gold and silver did just go together you know from from the beginning of the last bull market through that long 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 rise yeah uh, which as you say as you mentioned before people don't tend to have the patience to kind of see such long trends and follow such long trends but but uh, it was a, it was a really long one, wasn't it? From about two thousand, oh yeah, the year yeah. two thousand, all the way up to two thousand and twelve. Yeah. And gold and silver were not exactly in lockstep every stage of the way, but they were running pretty closely together. They, were. they both fell quite strongly during two thousand and eight, and then they both picked up again and rose further and further and further. And then they peaked in two thousand and eleven, twelve. I'm just looking at the charts now, and then they, and then they both fell together again. But then. Yeah, like you say, it, things started to they they just decoupled. Yes. Uh, I guess a couple of years ago, silver con has continued to fall, and gold is is on the rise. It's weird and unusual yes. and slightly disturbing. But it, <laughs> but it's still it's still okay to be. I think as long gold as gold's over thirteen fifty, you know that yeah. breakout point. I think that's even if even it shouldn't really come back to it if it's going to be a good move. Um, but as long as it's above thirteen fifty. I think it's okay. Um, you know, well, for me, price is king. Yes, um, exactly. I'm oh, sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> and Tim Price is king in, in in his game Supreme Commander, which was a subject of another podcast. But indeed, all right. But, but yeah, other than Tim Price being king, the other price that's king is is the, is the price of the price on charts. So it's sort of, I always keep that in mind when there are other factors to consider, because there are always other factors to consider. Yeah. And um, and a good friend of mine, Steve, who I know listens to this podcast. So a big shout out to Steve. Uh, he Hi, Steve. basically, Hi, Steve. He says, um, Steve O. <laughs> he basically is it Steve O up. or Steve G? Some well, Stevie G. Yes, sometimes that's it. Himself. That's the guy. Anyway, so um, you know he's he understands how the economy works really well, and he is he often talks to me about you know all the different factors that are affecting the economy and the markets, and he's like, well, there's this and there's that and there's this and there's that, and and you know that's helpful to a degree, but the the problem I think 
that I don't think Steve will mind me saying that the problem that, that that sometimes causes is there are too many contradictory factors. And it's and often it's impossible to know which ones are more important than the others. So it's like, for example, you know, just take an example. If you're looking at the economy, the US economy as a whole, you know, what's more important? Is it the unemployment figures being fantastic or is it the worries about the China trade talks on down? You know, yes. is that a, oh, yeah. a more of a downside worry than the unemployment figures are an upside factor. It's very difficult to know which factors are more important than the others. And that's why when push comes to shove, I trust the price that I can see on the chart. Price is king. When I see uh, the price of gold breaking out and going upwards, regardless of the fact that silver isn't going up and regardless of any other fundamental factors that people might tell me about the future of the gold market, I just ultimately have to trust price. And and what's more, the reason why I trust price, just keep thinking about Tim yeah. all the time. And the reason I trust price so much is because, um, because as I say, everything has been backtested in the past. The kind of strategies that I use, even though I'm a discretionary trader, the kind of strategies I, I use have just proven to be so successful nonstop over, over many, many decades and even centuries. Some of this stuff has been tested over data. So you know, ultimately, that's what I think it's if you're a trader as opposed to an investor, that's what you need to rely on is where the price is going and take every other piece of information with a pinch of salt. The other thing to bear in mind is that good advice is beyond price. Oh, Tim loves Ooh. his quotes. He does. indeed. <laughs> so, Glenn, it's been absolutely fantastic. Um, thank you so much for coming on. If people no. will no doubt want to get in contact with you and They'll want to read your book, I'm sure, because it is fantastic. Um, what are the best ways for them to get hold of you? Um, on my website, glengoodman.com, on my Facebook page, Glenn Goodman, The Shares Guy, where you can uh, message me on there. Uh, my book is on Amazon, The Crypto Traders on Amazon. Um, and if you do buy it on Amazon. I would massively appreciate a review on Amazon after you finish reading it, unless you didn't like it, in which case just <laughs> stay away from Amazon. Stay as far away from your computer as possible. But if you like it, then please write a review because it will really help me out. And and yeah. So the Facebook the share sorry, the Facebook page page, the shares guy, was the was it the the most it had the most users of any share page in the world? Was that am I correct? To say? Of any trading page. Trading page. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that uh, that's incredible? That's an incredible thing. I mean, congratulations on that. I mean, it might still be. Yeah. I I, I just say it what it it was the biggest trading yeah. page because I haven't kept tabs on whether anybody's beaten me since then in terms of sheer numbers. But but yeah, I had more than a quarter of a million followers. Well, I still have more than a quarter of a million followers on there. Brilliant. Um, but I'm trying to I'm I'm now going to move more onto Twitter as well. Yeah, if you follow me on Twitter, yeah. I'm going to be I'm going to be uh, well, I sometimes do post my analysis about Bitcoin and so on on there and I'm going to endeavor to do more so in the future just little thoughts about about uh, nice little setups that might lead to good trades, that kind of thing. So it'll be worth following me on Twitter if you if you want to trade cryptocurrencies. At Glenn Goodman on Twitter. That's me, yeah. Fantastic. So, media picks then, Tim. What do you think? Let's go for it. I'm going to kick off. Um, it's just worth saying the um, the cricket World Cup is currently is, is currently happening. Though it will clearly be finished by the time this this hits uh, this recording hits the web. Um, there's a story about Harold Pinter, the playwright, who was also massively into his cricket, 
And he, he composed a little ditty once, which went, I saw Don Bradman in his prime another time, another time. And he sent it round to all his mates. And a, a few weeks later, he asked, what do you think of the poem? And the guy said, well, to be honest, I haven't, I haven't found the time to read it yet. There <laughs> <laughs> was a there was a one of the Sky channels had a, a sort of retrospective on Terence Stamp yesterday. So on the back of that, I thought because I, I like a bit of Stamp. Um, and the the weird thing watching this is that Terence Stamp is uh, an actor, and he's still he's still with us. Uh, he's an actor that in the early part of his career just made the most appalling shit. And he, his, his film choices were just disastrous. And yet his, his career managed to, managed to survive that. Uh, so I know him, because I've never heard of any of his early stuff. Um, I know him from the first time I was conscious of him was probably the Superman films. And then soon after that, it would have been uh, the cameo he plays in Wall Street, which is outstanding. Mm. Um, sort of corporate raider. But the film I'm going to choose is The Hit from 1984. Uh, Stephen Frears film stars uh, Terence Stamp. It also got two houses in there. John Hurt's in there, and a very young um, Tim Roth, probably Tim Roth's first film. Uh, it's just, it's just a delight. Um, and I, I know there was one American director that called it like one of the uh, one of the one of the best British films ever made. But it's it's a bit of a kind of a sleeper uh, success. I don't think many people are that familiar with it. But it's the hit Stephen Frears, nineteen eighty four. And it's got your man stamp, and it's just a joy to watch. Fantastic. And mm. uh, what about you, Glenn? Have we? Have you got something? Did you know about this? Have we kind of? Yeah, yeah. yeah don't I'll, worry. Tim gave me the heads oh, up. Oh, good. He said to choose a, a media, a medium, to <laughs> a piece of and media, it, and it doesn't have to be good. It could be awful as well. Well, I've chosen. I, the first thing that came into my head basically was a book that I read about six months ago. So it clearly had a big impact on me. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Blueprint by the psychologist Robert Plowman. No. Or geneticist, rather. He's one of the world, and it actually relates to what we were talking about earlier. Blueprint by Robert Plowman. He's one of the world's top behavioral geneticists. Mm. And what he has done is pull together uh, 40 or 50 years worth of some of the best um, twin studies uh, that have been done in the world. And there aren't too many of them done these days for ethical reasons. Uh, but you may know that particularly a few decades ago, there were a lot of sets of identical twins. And when they were uh, adopted, a lot of sets of adopted identical twins, and they were often separated at birth. And then scientists would get in touch with them throughout the course of their lives and see how their lives were going in their adopted families in order to see the differences between them and all the similarities and try and settle that nature-nurture debate. So he's pulled together a huge amount of data from thousands and thousands and thousands of people and has come to some pretty startling conclusions. Uh, certainly they're startling to everybody I ever mentioned them to, uh, which is that your in terms of character traits, our genetics account for approximately 50% of our character traits, which is what a lot of people would probably guess. But here's the weird thing. The other 50% is not accounted for by our upbringings in most cases. Like as in how your parents bring you up has remarkably little impact on the person that you become as an adult in many, many different ways. Just to take one just specific example that uh, that struck me, but there are many, many more, is weight. 
right? You would think your weight, am I right in thinking you two that you would say your weight is partly determined by genetics, but then it's also partly due to the, the dietary environment that you live in, the, what, what the stuff that your people in your family eat and you eat yeah. because they eat it. Right. I've always kind of assumed it's down to how many pies one consumes. <laughs> well, it's not as simple as that, it turns out. Here's the remarkable thing, is that your weight is, when they when they looked at adopted, separated, identical twins, they found there was an amazingly strong correlation between the two identical twins' weight, even if they'd been brought up in completely different households, where one of them was brought up in a household of junk food, and the other one was brought up in a household of healthy eating. What they found was that the identical twins had a very, very, uh, very, very similar weights generally. And what's more, the the child, say a child brought up in an adopted household had much more similarity, much more correlation with their birth parents' weight than with their adopted parents' weight. And there was virtually zero correlation between an adopted child and its adopted sibling's weight. So you've got two different adopted children in a family being brought up in a particular dietary environment. There's, When you look at a large amount of these people, there's virtually no similarity, no correlation between the weights of these adopted siblings. So what I'm saying is it almost it is remarkable, but it almost doesn't matter what the dietary regime in your house is. It's like you're going to be the weight you're going to be. Right. I'm just going to I'm going to open some Kit Kats then, if that's what. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Have, 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 that is that is incredible. Have you seen the film Three Identical? Strains? I was exactly. That's yeah. exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I argued about this with a friend of mine the other night who'd seen the film as well. And he said the moral of the film is without spoiling it for anybody, because yeah. it's a great film. But he said the moral of the story was clearly that even if you're identical triplets, um, your life outcomes and how and the course of your life will be determined greatly by your upbringing. He said that that was kind of because, you know, these these people end up in different situations and i said i didn't take that from that from it at all i think that they jumped to conclusions there because i've seen the the massive wealth of data in blueprint and i know what the truth is because the data is so vast that it's pretty much incontrovertible and what the data shows us is that the we're more or less 50% determined by our genes but the other 50% is not determined by our upbringing it's determined by random factors that no academic has been able to pinpoint and that is such a weird thing because you'd think well surely the parents have a massive impact mm. the data says no the parents don't in fact it's random things like the buffeting of life the people you bump into when you're a teenager who bullies you at school or who you bully at school um what your first boss is like as a person just random other random stuff that happens to you yeah. that is the stuff that eventually forms your character along with the genetics and your parents have an impact, but their impact becomes less and less as you get older. So when you're a little child, the way your parents treat you does have a certain amount of impact on you. But as you get older and older and older, that impact diminishes and diminishes until statistically it's almost negligible for most character traits. That, there you go. That, as you can see, I'm very excited about no, that. No, that's that is fantastic. <laughs> that's that's so interesting. And as a parent, it means you you, you can just do whatever you want, really. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> 
It doesn't matter. I mean, let's take an example. If if your partner smokes, there's a good chance you're going to smoke. So I suppose at a young age, if you meet somebody and and you know you, you're into them and you spend a lot of time with them, then eventually you you might start smoking because they smoke. Of course, the other the other the opposite could be true. Um, you know, the person who doesn't smoke can make the other person not smoke. But you're, you're right about those random factors that can play a part. No matter how much you tell your kids that smoking is bad, you never know if they get into the wrong crowd or with someone else who does they they might do it so that that is fascinating but I also... indeed or maybe they were just predetermined to smoke anyway yes. in a large number of cases certainly they found that things like the amount of tv you watch is very closely related to how much tv your birth mother and birth father watch really? rather than your adopted parents yeah wow now that's fascinating um so my one for this week i actually have got a couple um well we've mentioned chernobyl um yeah but by the way I've discovered it's not pronounced Chernobyl, it's Chernobyl. So from now on, really? yeah, it's Chernobyl. The way they say it is Chernobyl. So I got corrected by somebody from... You're making me worry about the number of TV reports I must have done in the past where I mentioned Chernobyl. Yeah, no, well, every, we, all, <laughs> we all say Chernobyl, but it's actually Chernobyl. And uh, I've watched four of the five episodes and it is absolutely fantastic. So, uh, but we've mentioned that a few times on the podcast. Um, but the the... I, th I didn't think we could go without mentioning the moon landing. So uh, I, a great documentary on the BBC is Eight Days to the Moon and Back, which I, th I thought was brilliant. Surprisingly, I knew very little about how it all came about and the, the actual whole process. And I was, I don't know if you, you, maybe it's just me, but do you guys know exactly how it all happened with with how the limb um, docked and, and, and then went on the moon and then came back, et cetera? Do you know the technicalities? I could explain it to you, Paul, but I'm not. <laughs> but, it, but it's. I'm just assuming it involved boosters and thrusters. Well, and... yeah. When you actually look at it, I can see why people might say, Are "You sure this really happened?" Because it's so complicated, and there's so many, so many things that could have gone wrong. Of course, but it was actually far more complicated than even I, I'd imagined. So, actually, getting the finer details about how it came about was just absolutely mind-blowing so so did it make you more skeptical about whether the moon landing actually happened because it just seemed so implausible the the complications of it actually it made me think that it it was that it did happen because um although it was so implausible um i i just think the the thing that swung it for me was how much it cost and it was something like 19 billion dollars in 1969, $19 billion was a lot of money. I mean, Which today would be worth six quintillion yes, dollars. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but that's just like, like the cost of one Lehman Brothers bailout. Exactly, so exactly. <laughs> so, so if you throw enough money at it, it's it's and it's not as if they didn't have previous about going into the atmosphere. So they had, although there were a lot of complications, it's just the sheer amount of money that, uh, that went into it that um, made it work. I mean, like there were certain things that I think I was thinking, how on earth are they doing this? And like, for example, they were, they were sending video images back and the president Nixon had a telephone call um, with Armstrong on the moon. And I was thinking, well, hang on a minute. Wouldn't there be like a four or five second delay? How are they doing that? And, but I, I guess the delay would be about a second or two or, or just a, about a second, which is enough to have a normal conversation. So it's various technical things. I still wonder how on earth they did it. But yeah, it's it's just mind blowing. So definitely worth watching eight days to the moon and back. 
the the other one is um on a completely different subject uh, you know talking about health and and uh, and looking after yourself there's another documentary called the honest supermarket again on the bbc i hate to say but it is and it's about right. what these what's in our supermarket products that we don't know about and it's <laughs> a bit of an eye opener uh, i don't think you'll be buying bottled water anytime soon once you've watched this documentary that's all i can Why? say What's in it? Uh, 90% has got pieces of microplastic in it. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, <laughs> oh, no. I, I know it's, it's really, it's really not good. So, you know, it's so depressing <laughs> when you think about all the things that can, you know, all the things that can kill you that you don't know about until sort of 30 years after you've imbibed them. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, well, why did I waste all my time being healthy and eating fruit and vegetables if it turned out that all my, you know, just hypothetically that all my fruit and vegetables was covered with a pesticide that that will now kill me anyway? It's funny you, know? you should say that about the pesticides because that what what they were saying about the pesticides is individually certain pesticides are very safe. But if you mix them, you end up with a cocktail that's very dangerous or could be very dangerous. And that's the problem. So there are pesticides that are being used that in combination are dangerous. And so I, I think something like that, I send out to my family immediately and say, look, you guys, you've got to watch this. And that's why I wanted to mention it on the podcast. So, you know, it's it's worth bearing in mind. Um, to, be fair, to be fair, though, it's not new news because the, the, the American comedian W.C. Fields, uh, well, the American comedian and alcoholic W.C. Fields said, yeah. I, don't, I don't drink water because fish fuck in it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is that. But <laughs> That's a great line. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there goes our clean rating for another week. Yeah, us. thanks, Tim. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Parent, parental advisory. Yeah. We we had to change it because of Rory Sutherland, and it's kind of stayed on a. He was a, a one man, a one man certificate eighteen wrecking ball. Yeah, it throughout was, our entire archive, it's only one word. It was it was just too good to bleep. It was just so good. No, there was a mention of shit earlier on, and now there's been another one. And now there's no, no, I've said, no, it, no. I, I, and I've said it again. Yeah, so this is going to turn into a Blues Brothers routine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Well. Uh, Glenn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It really has been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, it's been fun. And we'd love to have you back, of course. And best of luck with the book. Highly recommended. Tim, thank you to my co-host. It's been absolutely great as always. And thank you. I'd like I'd like to thank Millionaire Mentor for his stalwart support. Yes. Podcast. Just Glenn, once again, thank you so much. And you know, best of luck with your trading. Thanks a lot. Thank so you. I look forward to speaking to you guys again soon. Thanks again. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.